I was nervous. I had played drums in studios before, but this time was different. I was in an actual studio with an actual producer, and we were about to get started. You know, whenever you're recording, you typically start with drums and bass. So day one of this project with my new band, we're in the studio. I unloaded my drums, I got all set up, we got sound, you know, we checked the mics, and then we pushed record. And we got about halfway through the first song, and then the producer stopped, and he said, what's that noise? There's this faint, low-pitched humming sound coming through on some of the mics. So what, what's that noise? And none of us could figure it out. And so we tried to record again, and again, he heard it, and he stopped. He said, what is that noise? And then somebody who was there, one of the band members, looked at me and said, Matt, is that coming from you? And I said, no. And he said, I think that's coming from you. I think you're actually making some kind of a sound with your mouth while you're playing drums. Sure enough, I, I paid attention to my body. I realized, oh my goodness, I'm so into the groove that I am humming along to the beat while I'm playing. And the mics are picking it up. I was so embarrassed. And then with considerable effort, I was able to stop. And we finally got some decent drum tracks. But I had no idea. To this day, it's kind of bizarre. The only two times that I do that sound are when I'm playing drums and eating cereal, and I have no idea the connection. <laughs> now, sometimes we can be doing things that we have no awareness of or very little awareness of that are actually hurting us. They're getting in the way and not just humming while you're trying to record drum tracks, but we can do things or believe things that affect us financially, physically, emotionally, and they get in the way of us trying to live the kinds of lives that we want to live, that God's called us to live. And that can be true of us spiritually, too. That there are thoughts or attitudes or habits going on in our lives that we don't know about that are hindering us spiritually. Some of you have heard me share about my experience as a young adult. I joined a therapy group. There's a about seven married couples, and we were exploring our stories. And in this group, there was two counselors, and one of them in particular was really discerning and really disruptive. And he asked me a really disruptive question at one point. He said, Matt, have you judged the other people in this group? And I thought, I have no idea how to answer that. It felt like a trap, and it was a trap. <laughs> I said, yeah, sure, I, I, you know, I probably have. And then he said, Matt, I want you to go around the circle, and I want you to share with every man in this group how you've judged them. And I didn't want to do it. And he said, you don't have to do it. But it was clear to me that he saw something in me, and there was something for me on the other side of that if I was willing to be that exposed, that vulnerable. And I didn't know what I was going to share because I, I wasn't holding conscious thoughts of judgment towards all these other people. But as I looked around the circle, I became aware that there are thoughts. There are ways that I have looked down on them or seen myself as superior to each of them because of what they've done or said or who they are. 
And so in a moment of sheer terror, I shared with the group. I said, I've judged you for this, 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 and I went around the circle. And it was one of the most humiliating, painful, vulnerable, shameful experiences I've ever, ever had. But the long story short is that that experience was incredibly healing and transformative for me. And I, actually, I grew, I became more aware, and I actually was more loved by those people afterward than I was before, after some of them stopped being ticked off at me. Because the truth was, they said, now you're being you, you're being honest, you're being real. Now, the, the scary thing is, I had no idea that was inside of me. But it was there. You see, one of the operating beliefs beneath the substrata of, of my life was this. God loves me in part because of what I do. That's what I believed. God loves me. Yes, God loves me. It's the gospel that, that God loves me by grace. And I, and I would have said, yes, God loves me. But on some level, to some degree, even if it's small, God loves me and other people based on our behavior, that he adjusts his, his love based on what we do. What I was believing on some level, again, this, you know, I would have told you all the right doctrines and creeds and everything, but what I was believing on some level was all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but some more than others. And all are saved by grace, but some a little more than others. And the result was a self-righteous, judgmental spirit. And here's the scary part when I think back about that. I had no idea that that was in me. And I still wrestle with that today. So if, if this can happen to us, and I don't think I'm alone, where you know, these thoughts or attitudes or narratives, they kind of develop in our hearts and minds over time, and they actually are damaging. They're not true. They pull us away from the kind of life that God wants for us. They make us more unloving towards other people. If that happens in us, how do we know it's happening? Is there a way we can know? Is there a way we can prevent Thoughts like that from, from welling up inside of us. Maybe more importantly, when that happens, when we become aware, you know, okay, this, this false gospel is inside of me, how can we change? How can we become different people by God's grace? If you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 11 this morning. 1 Corinthians 11, this is a, a, a letter that Paul wrote to Christians in the first century in the town of Corinth, Sin City, a city known for its sexual immorality and pagan idolatry. And this church had all kinds of issues. And I'm so thankful that they had all these issues because we get to learn <laughs> from their mistakes and we get God's instruction speaking into many of the issues that we have today. But in chapter 11 of this letter, Paul, he, he begins addressing the gathering of the church. That, that This church, when you gather together, that gathering is so important. It's so vital for your connection to each other, to God. 
And Paul, he, he starts talking about different aspects of that gathering. But he starts by talking about the Lord's Supper or communion. And this is so, as I study this, this is so profound, it's so important for us today. And he begins this exploration of this practice of the Lord's Supper with a bomb. I want you to look with me at verse 17. Paul, he says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. This is some of the strongest language in all of Paul's letters. Can you imagine getting a letter like this? Can you imagine GFC getting a letter like this? Paul, he says, hey, GFC, I love you guys. Grateful for you. God's at work. You're doing great things. But by the way, small thing, anytime you gather, it does more harm than good. It's like, this is a huge statement. Now, why does he say this? He says in the next verse, in the first place, again, this is the very first thing that's keeping their gatherings from being what God wants for them to be. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it, division is a key issue throughout this whole letter. This church was divided over their loyalty to different leaders. They were divided over the way they would practice different religious customs, And then he says in the next verse, he says, No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Now, what in the world does this mean? Paul has just said divisions are bad, but here he says you have differences among you and you need these differences. What what Paul is saying is, of course, there are differences among you in terms of what you believe theologically and about doctrine. And those differences, Paul is saying, are okay. In fact, they're good. Because the differences in what you believe, they show who is believing truth as revealed in Scripture, the right doctrine, and who is not. So differences are okay. In fact, that's good because you need to know, are you following the true faith as it's been passed down through Scripture or not? But then after that, he gives a fierce rebuke. He says this in verse 20. He says, so then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? The Lord's Supper is the same thing that's referred to as communion. That's what we call it here. It's the practice that Jesus instituted before his death. And we're going to unpack that in just a moment. Now, in the early church, communion looked very different from it does today. They didn't have these tiny little packets with grape juice and a cracker. In the early church, when Christians would gather, this wasn't just something they would tack on to the end of their service. They would share a whole meal together. That's what the Lord's Supper was. It was a meal of thanksgiving reflecting on the death of Jesus. So that the early church, they would come together. They would have a time of singing and worship. They would have a, a time of teaching and encouragement. And then they would have a meal. And something about the Corinthian church, they're doing that meal so wrong 
that Paul says, it's like you're not even doing the Lord's Supper at all. Now, what were they doing? Well, the key is verse 21. Paul, he says, when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Now, almost all scholars agree that what is going on in these verses is there is a deep division in this church between rich and poor. That the rich people in this church gathering, they were getting there earlier because they had servants and they had people to help them throughout the day with their work, and so they could get done with their tasks earlier. So they would get to these gatherings earlier, and because they had more resources, they would bring a lot of food, a lot of wine, And the the people, the poor with less resources in this church, they would arrive later and they would not be able to bring as much food or as much wine and they would get there later. And the rich people in this church, they had already gone on and started to eat the Lord's Supper and they weren't even sharing when they had extra. So just imagine the scene again. If you were a person with less resources in this church and a huge part, a central part of the gathering was sharing this meal together in honor of the death of Jesus. You come to this gathering and you walk in late. And I just want you to imagine, you walk in and everybody is like already at dessert, right? I mean, they've already had their appetizers, their meal, and you look around and you're just trying to find a seat. And you're like, where do I even sit? Looks like most of the seats are taken. And then finally you pull up a chair to one of the tables and you take out what you brought and you got this you know, measly little plate compared to other people. And they have more. They're not sharing. In fact, a couple people at your table, they're drunk because they've had so much wine. How do you feel? Do you feel valued by your brothers and sisters in Christ? This is what's happening in this church. And Paul <clears throat> is furious about it. So look what he says in the next verse. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Now, the reason Paul is so upset is not just because this is rude. And you guys are being rude. There's something far more important. Throughout this whole letter, Paul's big emphasis has been unity. In fact, if you had to sum up the letter of 1 Corinthians in one word, it would be unity. Paul's plea for the church to be unified. And this practice of the Lord's Supper of Communion that is meant to unify God's people together is being exercised in a way that is actually doing the opposite. It is leading to disunity in this church rather than unity. So mad about it. And I love what William Barclay says and why unity was so crucial in the early church. He says this. He says, The early church was the one place in all the ancient world where the barriers which divided the world were down. The ancient world was very rigidly divided. There were the free men and the slaves. There were the Greeks and the barbarians, the people who did not speak Greek. There were the Jews and the Gentiles. There were Roman citizens and the lesser breeds without the law. There were the cultured and the ignorant. The church was the one place where all men could and did come together. Just think about that. 
And then he says this, he says, a church where social and class distinctions exist is no true church at all. A real church is a body of men and women united to each other because all are united to Christ. So the way they're doing this practice, it reveals to Paul that they've lost the plot, that the whole point, the heart of this practice is unity. And they're doing it so flippantly, so selfishly, that it's leading to disunity, to the very opposite. So Paul then, he goes on and he reminds them of why we even do this. Why we do the Lord's Supper. Verse 23, Paul, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. And those those verbs for received and passed on, they are technical terms for the transmission of religious instruction, which is a long way of saying Paul is very carefully and accurately articulating. This is exactly what I received from Jesus and what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Now, this is describing, many of us, you know, you're aware of this, but this is describing the night before Jesus went to the cross. And that night was a significant night for several reasons. One was it was Passover. And Passover was a huge deal in Jewish culture. All of these disciples who grew up, they they were Jewish boys. They would have practiced Passover with their families every year. And what you did on Passover was you came together with your family to have supper. And the person presiding over the meal, typically the father, would take bread and would break the bread and then would say this. This is Passover dinner with your family. The father would break bread and say, this is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the wilderness. Let all who are hungry come and eat. And then the father would go on and talk about the liberation of Israel out of Egypt. And now each of the elements of this meal, they remind us of what they went through and of God's faithfulness to deliver them. And when Jesus gathered with his disciples, they didn't know it would be any different, and it begins the same way. I mean, Jesus, he... He takes some bread and he breaks it. But then Jesus does something that was radical. And this washes over us because we've heard it. But listen, this was absolutely radical. Jesus, he says this. This is my body. Not this is the bread of affliction. He says this, this meal, this bread, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He says, this is really about me. You didn't mess with the Passover. I mean, this was Israel's most sacred tradition, arguably. And Jesus says, no, this is about me. He redefines it. And the most controversial thing that Jesus says in that short sentence is, this is my body. Now, just quickly... That phrase, this is my body, this is the most controversial part of this passage because it's been interpreted by Christians in different ways. And there's two main viewpoints. One position is to say that when Jesus says, this is my body, that when we participate in communion, that that it's literally the body of Jesus. 
So this is my body. When we participate in communion, we are taking into ourselves the body and the blood of Jesus. It becomes that when we ingest it. And, and in some circles, people would say that's what deals with our sin. The transmission of Jesus' blood and body to us is what deals with our sin. So if you haven't had communion lately, you might be in trouble. So that's one position, which is to say, this is literal. This is my body. The other position is to say, no, this is symbolic. It's metaphorical. That Jesus is saying, this bread represents my body. It's not actually his body, but it's a symbol that reminds us of what's true. It's a visible expression of an invisible reality that Jesus' body was broken and given to us. Now, again, there's variations, but those are the two primary points of view. And for us and for most churches in the Protestant, Protestant stream, that second position is what we hold, that it was symbolic that when Jesus says, this is my body, it's metaphorical. Now, having said that, I think for us, if we relegate communion to purely a symbol, and we just think about it intellectually, I think we're missing it. The chapter before this, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul, he says this. He says, is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation. There's something about the bread and the cup and this meal that God, that Jesus instituted that is a participation in the body of Christ. And that is why, by the way, that we refer to this practice as communion. Because in some mysterious way, we actually commune with the presence of God through communion. We deepen our fellowship with him and with one another. So it is a symbol. But there's something about this symbol that is profound. We experience God's presence in a unique way. It's so important. And then Paul, he says this. He says, in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And this new covenant is the promise that God gave in the Old Testament that God would forgive our sins and give us a new heart. That's the new covenant. And what Jesus says is, I'm about to inaugurate the new covenant through what I'm about to do on the cross. And just as Jesus does with the, the bread, he says, do this in remembrance of me. It, there's, there's meant to be this connection between participating in communion and remembering the death of Jesus. In Lord of the Rings, Pippin, one of the hobbits, is in a besieged city, and he's terrified. And the armies of Mordor are coming, crashing in. And it's at that moment that he hears the horns of Rohan. And he hears the horns of Rohan, and then these soldiers, these armies from Rohan, they come, and they, and, and they ride in, and they rescue Pippin and his friends. And the story goes on later in Lord of the Rings. It, it, it goes on and it says that, that Pippin could never, ever, from that point, he could never hear the sound of distant horns without crying. Because it was an audible reminder of his salvation. You see, in the same way, what God intends, and Paul writes, is that 
Communion is meant to be a visible reminder of our salvation. And then he goes on and he says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And this is so profound and we we, we can't spend too much time here, but this word for proclaim is used 17 times in the New Testament and almost every use has to do with preaching, speaking, declaring the gospel. So what, what Paul says is when we do communion, it's a sermon. We are preaching the gospel. So today, whenever I say amen, the preaching isn't over. I mean, every time we do communion, if our hearts are open to it, God is speaking the gospel to us and to the people in our midst. And this pronoun is the second person plural, which means whenever you all do this, you all proclaim. In other words, you know, in Texas, we'd say y'all, that, that this is not, whenever you do communion in your closet, you and Jesus, you proclaim. No, this is whenever the gathered church, whenever y'all do this, you proclaim. There's something about this the, the, the gathering of God's people and doing this is so essential to Paul. And Jesus gives us an end date, doesn't he? He says, do this until Jesus comes. Because when he comes, the whole point from which this is pointing to, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that is what will be happening. That, that when Jesus comes, Revelation talks about this, we will be at the table with Jesus throughout eternity sharing a meal together with him. And so communion is meant to remind us of that, to point us to that. And then, Paul, he goes on, and I just want to unpack this quickly because there's a lot of misunderstanding about these next few verses. He says, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now, this has put fear into some of us. It's like, okay, what does that mean? And am I doing it? Well, let me just say what this can't mean. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Let me tell you what this can't mean. It can't mean that whoever participates in communion with sin in his life will be guilty. This can't mean sinless. Because the whole point of communion is that we are sinful, that Jesus died in our place. This meal is for sinners. So it can't mean clean up your life first and then you can take communion. Now, I also believe strongly that this does not mean, hey, don't take this meal. Don't participate in communion if you're not a believer. Now, some take that position. But this is a letter to Christians. And if you zoom out and look at the bigger context, Paul's rebuke of the Corinthians, their practice, their mispractice of the Lord's Supper, it's for Christians. They're doing something wrong. So then what does it mean? Well, again, if you zoom out and you think about the whole rich-poor divide, you think about the disunity in the church, this is what I think Paul is saying. Evan Wickham, he captures this. He says this. He's summarizing. Paul is saying, hey, Christians, there is a painful irony going on here. 
that as you eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus, you are simultaneously sinning against Jesus' body and blood family, the church. There's this irony, and it's painful, it's shameful, that you are eating this meal while you are looking down and excluding God's people that he died for. And so when it goes on in the next verses to say, whenever you eat this, you need to discern the body. He's talking about people. You need to be aware of the brothers and sisters in Christ that you have. You're not just doing this on your own. This is part of a shared act of worship. So how does this apply to us today? You know, I, I think for a lot of us, no matter how long you've been in church, we need theology around what we do. We can, it, very easily, we can just fall into these patterns of I just do communion, we do these things, and we just do them because we do them. And so we all need theology around why we do what we do. But, but I think there's a deeper question, which is why do we need this theology? What about this practice and what it's trying to teach us and demonstrate? What about that is so important? Why does it matter for you today? You know, one of the only words that's used twice in these verses from Jesus is the word remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. You know, nowhere are we told to remember the birth date of Jesus, but we're told very clearly to remember the death date of Jesus. Why? Why is that so important? Well, that word remembrance in Greek, it's the word anamnesis, anamnesis. And it's the root from which we get our English word amnesia, which is the opposite of remembering. It's to forget. It's an absence of remembering. Why do we need this practice so much? Why do we need communion, the Lord's Supper? Why do we need this? Because all of us struggle with spiritual amnesia. We all forget. Listen, me at the beginning of the story that I shared about me in that therapy group, I believed on some level I wasn't aware of it. God loves me in part because of what I do. I forgot We all struggle to remember the truth of the gospel. I forgot, guys, that that Jesus' love towards me has nothing to do with me and my lovability. That God never adjusts his love to my conduct ever or for anyone else. That God demonstrates his love and that while we were sinners, while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. And, you know, maybe you're here today and you believe on some level that God loves you in part because of what you do. Maybe it's the way you grew up. Maybe it's just an assumption you've had about God that he is like the human father that you have that loved you partly because of what you do. But no matter what, listen, we live in a broken world with people who do not love us like God. And and so for many of us, we operate with this belief God loves me at least in part. Because of what I do. Some of you, maybe you're here today and you feel like you're doing great spiritually. You're coming to church, you're reading your Bible, you're praying, but maybe you feel this fear that what if I stop? What if I I no longer make straight A's on my spiritual report card? Is God going to love me as much as he does? 
Now, there's others of you who are struggling right now. You're losing your temper with your kids. You're not being wise or generous financially. You're not praying. It's not important to you. And and you have this faint feeling that you can't shake that God is disappointed in you on some level. That sure, Jesus loves me. You come here, you sing it. But but, but on some level, you believe God is disappointed. And And there's others of you, perhaps, that, that there's something that happened a long time ago in your life, a breach of integrity, infidelity, something happened, and you have this cloud that hangs over you of shame and of guilt. We all struggle with spiritual amnesia. We forget the gospel. And every time we participate in communion, we have the opportunity to reorient ourselves to the truth of the gospel. And here's the gospel that you are so broken that Jesus had to die for you. And you are so loved that Jesus chose to die for you. You and I, we are so broken that Jesus had to die. That was the only way. Think about that. God had to die. And yet, so loved and accepted that Jesus chose to die. And when that truth permeates our being... When we embrace that and are shaped by that, there is no room for pride. There's no room for looking down and judging other people because I'm so broken that Jesus had to die for me. And there is no room for insecurity, for self-pity because Jesus, he chose to die for me. How valuable and loved I must be by God. You know, Tim Keller, he captures this in in a quote which I love. He says this, We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. When we take communion as a faith family, when you sit there and you take the bread and you you take the cup, we have an opportunity to reorient ourselves to the truth of the gospel. And as we embrace that, we're changed and let me just say, that is how we grow in the Christian life. We, we never graduate from the gospel. We never move on. I love what John Wimber says. He says, the way in is the way on. And you know, simply what this means is the way we grow in the Christian life, it's the same way we began, which is by receiving the love of God. Do you know how much of our behavior and anxiety in our lives generates from the truth that we do not believe that God loves us the way he says he loves us. And every time we take communion, we have the opportunity to remember, and it's so crucial. So in just a moment, we're going to practice communion together, not just taking the elements, but remembering. And and I just want to encourage you, maybe as handles, as you think about this, to reflect on these two truths. As As you participate, as you reflect on communion, these two truths, that I'm so broken that Jesus had to die for me, and I'm so loved that Jesus chose to die for me. Reflect on on that as you participate in communion, and even this week as you go. Now, I, I, I learned this week in a message from Tyler Statton that, that proposing in the first century in Israel was very different than it is today. That after the betrothal, on a random night, the man would go to the house of the woman he loved 
And he would have all of his friends and family talk about pressure. Oh, my gosh. He would have all of his friends and family. They'd show up, knock, knock. And he would take the woman that he loved, and they would walk across town together back to his house. There's no way we could do this in our world today. And when they got back to his house, they would share a meal. And at the beginning of that meal, the man would take a glass of wine, and he would slide it across the table. And that woman, when she took the wine, if she drank it, she said, yes, I'll marry you. And if she didn't, she was saying, hard pass. You see, that first communion, the Lord's Supper, in a sense, listen, this was Jesus proposing. Getting emotional thinking about it that he looked at these guys, these ragamuffin disciples with their pride and their anger and their jealousy, their envy, and he slid that glass of wine across the table and said, I love you, and I'm about to lay down my life for you. I'm going to be ripped apart because I want you to be in my family forever. And every time that, that we do communion, in a sense, it's, it's a reminder of that reality that Jesus slides the glass across the table to you and says, despite all your failures, your short temper, your impure motives, I love you. And I gave my life. I ate the bread of affliction so that you could have the bread of life, so that you could experience eternal life. Every time we do communion, we have the opportunity to remember that. And that's what we'll do in just a moment. Would you pray with me? Father, we're just uh, in awe of your love for us. That God, you never adjust your love to our conduct. And The cross of Christ is the ultimate statement of that. It's the ultimate clarification about our value in your eyes. That Jesus, you gave your life so that we could be forgiven and brought into your family. And Lord, I just pray for my own heart. It's just easy to get numb to this and just go through the motions when we take communion. And I I just pray for all of us, God, that as we do this, that we would have this profound sense that you love us and it cost you everything. Help us to not minimize our own sin or our own brokenness or failure. Help us to realize that it's real and that there had to be a cost and Jesus paid it all. There's nothing left to pay. So Lord, let us step into this moment mindful of the gospel and help us to honor you. Help us to live in light of this reality that we preach as we participate in this meal together. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.